0: Hey, everybody, this is Reuben, and you are listening to Amazing Stories. Chapter Sixteen We often say, I wasn't surprised or I knew it would happen, meaning that in the moment of an event's occurrence, although we'd previously given it no conscious thought, we have a feeling of inevitableness, as though we'd known for a long time that precisely this was going to happen. In the minutes we'd been sitting there by the window, all I could think of to do was wait until dark, and then try to work our way through the hills and out of town. It was useless to try in daylight with every hand and eye against us. I explained this to Becky in as hopeful terms as I could, trying to look as though I believed we could succeed. And there were moments when I did feel hopeful. And yet when I heard the slight grate of a key sliding into the lock of my reception room door, I had the feeling I've tried to describe. I wasn't surprised. It seemed to me then that I'd known all along what would happen, and I even had time to realize that whoever it was had simply gotten the building's master key from the janitor. But when the door opened, and I saw the first of the four people who walked into the room, I scrambled to my feet, my heart suddenly elated and pounding, Grinning with wild new hope and excitement, my hand moving out to shake his, I stepped quickly forward, and my voice came out in a harsh, loud whisper, Manny! I said in a kind of fierce exultation, and I grabbed his hand and shook it. He responded, though with less vigor than I expected, his hand almost limp in mine, as though accepting but not fully returning my greeting. Then, staring at his face, I knew. It's hard to say how I knew. Possibly the eyes lacked a little luster. Maybe the muscles of the face had lost just a hint of their usual tension and alertness, and maybe not. But I knew. Manny, seeing in my face what was going on in my mind, nodded his head slowly, and, as though I'd spoken aloud, said, Yeah, Miles, and for a long time, just before the night you phoned me. I turned to see who else had come into the room, glancing at each face. Then I walked back to put my arm around Becky's shoulder and faced them. One of the men, they stood there by the door, "'was small, stout, and bald. "'I'd never seen him before. "'Another was Chet Meeker, an accountant in town, "'a big, black-haired, pleasant-faced man in his middle thirties. "'The fourth was Budlong, who smiled at us now, "'as friendly and as nice as he'd been before. "'We stood by the windows, Becky and I, "'and Manny motioned at the Chesterfield and said, "'Sit down, his voice gentle.' We shook our heads, and he repeated it. Sit down, he urged. Please, Becky, you're tired, worn out. Go ahead, sit down. But Becky pressed herself closer to me, and I tightened my arm around her shoulders and shook my head again. All right, Manny pushed the sheets on the Chesterfield aside and sat down. Chet Meeker walked in and sat beside him. Bud Long took a chair across the room from them, and the little man I didn't know sat nearer the outer door. I wish you'd relax and take it easy, Manny said, brows lifting, smiling at us in frank concern for our comfort. We're not going to hurt you, and once you understand what we... have to do, he shrugged. I think maybe you'll accept it and wonder what all the fuss was about. He sat looking at us. Then when we didn't reply or move, he sat back on the Chesterfield. Well, first of all, it doesn't hurt. You'll feel nothing. Becky, I promise you that. He sat nibbling at his lip for a moment, getting what he had to say in order. Then he looked up at us again. And when you wake up, you'll feel just exactly the same. You'll be the same in every thought, memory, habit, and mannerism, right down to the last little atom of your bodies. There's no difference. None. You are just the same. He said it forcefully, convincingly. But for the least fraction of an instant a hint of disbelief in his own words flickered in his eyes. Why bother then, I said casually. I had no hope in argument, but I had to say something, it seemed to me. Just let us alone then. We'll leave town and we won't come back. Well, Manny started to answer, then stopped and looked at Budlong across the room. Maybe you ought to explain that, Bud. All right. Looking pleased, bud Long settled back in his chair, the professor anticipating the joy of teaching, just as he had done all his life, undoubtedly. And I found myself wondering if Manny weren't right, that actually there was no change, and you were still just the way you had always been. You saw what you saw, and you know what you know, but long began. You've seen the pods, for lack of another name, seen them change and prepare themselves. Twice you've seen the process almost completed. But why force you through the process when there is, as we say, no final difference at all? Again, as they had in his home, the fingertips of each hand found those of the other in academic, professorial gesture, and he smiled at us, a youthful, pleasant-faced man. It's a good question, but there is an answer and a simple one. As you surmise, the pods are, in a sense, seed pods, though not in the sense that we know seeds. But in any case, they are living matter, capable, just as are seeds, of enormous and complex growth and development. And they did drift through space, the original ones anyway, over enormous distances and through millenniums of time, just as I told you. Though, of course, he smiled in polite apology, I tried to phrase it in a way to cast doubt over the notion. They live, however. They arrived on this planet by pure chance, but having arrived, they have a function to perform as natural to them as yours are to you. And that's why you must go through the change. The pods must fulfill their function, their reason for being. And what's their function? I said sarcastically. Budlong shrugged the function of all life, everywhere, to survive. For a moment he stared at me. Life exists throughout the universe, Dr. Bennell. Most scientists know that and willingly admit it. It has to be true, though we've never before encountered it. But it's there. Infinite distances away, in every conceivable and inconceivable form, since it exists under enormously varied conditions. Consider, doctor, that there are planets and life incalculably older than ours. What happens when an ancient planet finally dies? The life form on it must reckon with and prepare for that fact to survive. Budlong sat forward in his chair, staring at me, fascinated by what he was saying. A planet dies, he repeated, slowly and over immeasurable ages. The life-form on it, slowly and over immeasurable ages, must prepare. Prepare for what? For leaving the planet? To arrive where? And when? There's no answer but one which they achieved. It is universal adaptability to any and all other life forms under any and all other conditions they might possibly encounter. Budlong grinned at us happily and sat back in his chair. Oh, he was having a fine time. Outside on the street, a car honked and a child began to wail. So, in a sense, of course, the pods are a parasite on whatever life they encountered," Goodlong went on. But they are the perfect parasite, capable of far more than clinging to the host. They are completely evolved life. They have the ability to reform and reconstitute themselves into perfect duplication. Cell for living cell of any life form they may encounter in whatever conditions that life has suited itself for. My face must have shown what I was thinking, because Budlong grinned and held up a hand. I know, it sounds like gibbering insane raving, that's only natural, because we're trapped by our own conceptions, Doctor, our necessarily limited notions of what life can be. Actually, we can't really conceive of anything very much different from ourselves and whatever other life exists on this one little planet. Prove it yourself. What do imaginary men from Mars in our comic strips and fiction resemble? Think about it. They resemble grotesque versions of ourselves. We can't imagine anything different. Oh, they may have six legs, three arms and antennae sprouting from their heads, he smiled, like insects we're familiar with, but they are nothing fundamentally different from what we know. He held up a finger as though reproving an unprepared pupil. But to accept our own limitations and really believe that evolution through the universe must, for some reason, follow paths similar to our own in any least way is, he shrugged and smiled, rather insular. In fact, downright provincial. Life takes whatever form it must. A monster, forty feet high, with an immense neck and weighing tons, Call it a dinosaur. When conditions change and the dinosaur is no longer possible, it is gone. But life isn't. It's still there in a new form, any form necessary. His face was solemn. The truth is what I say. It did happen. The pods arrived drifting onto our planet as they have onto others, and they performed and are now performing their simple and natural function, which is to survive, on this planet. And they do so by exercising their evolved ability to adapt and take over and duplicate cell for cell the life this planet is suited for. I didn't know what good time would do us, but I was willing, anxious, to talk just as long as he wanted the will to survive, I supposed, and smiled. Jargon, I said tauntingly. Cheap theory. Because how? How could they do it? And in any case, how do you know? What do you know about other planets and life forms? I said it jeeringly, nastily, and with a bite in my voice, and I felt Becky's shoulders tremble momentarily under my arm. He didn't get mad. We know. He said simply, there is, he shrugged, not memory. Uh, You can't call it that. Can't call it anything you could ever recognize. But there is knowledge in this life form, of course, and it stays. I am still what I was, in every respect, right down to a scar on my foot I got as a child. I'm still Bernard Budlong. But the other knowledge is there, too, now. It stays, and I know. We all do. For a moment he sat staring at nothing, then he looked up at us again. As to how does it happen, how do they do what they do? He grinned at me. Come now, Dr. Bennel. Think how little we actually know on this raw new little planet. We're just out of the trees, still savages. Only 200 years ago, you doctors didn't even know blood circulated. You thought it was a motionless fluid filling the body like water in a sack. And in my own lifetime... The existence of brain waves wasn't even suspected. Think of it, doctor, brain waves, actual electrical emanations from the brain in specific identifiable patterns penetrating the skull to the outside to be picked up, amplified, and charted. You can sit and watch them on a screen. Are you an epileptic, actual, or even potential? The pattern of your own individual brain waves will instantly answer that question as you very well know you're a doctor. And brain waves have always existed. They weren't invented, only discovered. People have always had them, just as they've always had fingerprints. Abraham Lincoln, Pontius Pilate, and Cro Magnon Man. We just didn't know it, that's all. He sighed and said, And there's a great deal more we don't know or even begin to suspect. Not only your brain, but your entire body. Every cell of it emanates waves as individual as fingerprints. Do you believe that, Doctor? He smiled. Well, do you believe that utterly invisible, undetectable waves can emanate from a room, move silently through space, be picked up? and then reproduce precisely every word, sound, and tone to be heard in that original room. The sound of a whispered voice, the note of a piano, the plucked string of a guitar. Your grandfather would never have believed such an impossibility, but you do. You believe in radio. You even believe in television. He nodded. Yes, Dr. Bennell, your body contains a pattern. All living matter does, it is the very foundation of cellular life because it is composed of the tiny electrical force lines that hold together the very atoms that constitute your being, and therefore it is a pattern, infinitely more perfect in detail than any blueprint could be, of the precise atomic constitution of your body at exactly that moment, altering with every breath you take and with every second of time in which your body infinitesimally changes. And it is during sleep, incidentally, when that change occurs least and during sleep, when that pattern can be taken from you, absorbed like static electricity from one body to another. Again he nodded. So it can happen, Dr. Benel, and rather easily. The intricate pattern of electrical force lines that knit together every atom of your body to form and constitute every last cell of it can be slowly transferred. And then, since every kind of atom in the universe is identical, the building blocks of the universe, you are precisely duplicated. Atom for atom, molecule for molecule, cell for cell, down to the tiniest scar or hair on your wrist. What happens to the original? The atoms that formerly composed you are static now, nothing, a pile of gray fluff. It can happen, does happen, and you know that it has happened, and yet you will not accept it. He watched me for a moment, then smiled. Though perhaps I'm wrong about that. I think maybe you have accepted it. For a time then the room was silent, the four figures in my waiting room quietly watching Becky and me. He was right. I believed him. I knew it was true, possible or impossible, and the helplessness and frustration were rising up in me. I could feel it in my fingertips, an actual physical sensation, a compelling urgency to do something. And I sat there, my fists clenching and unclenching. Suddenly, impulsively, for no other reason than to move, to act, to do something, I reached behind me, grabbed the cord of the Venetian blind, and yanked. The blind shot up, the slats rattled like machine-gun fire, daylight slanting into the room, and I turned to look down at the wandering shoppers, the stores, the cars, the parking meters, the so ordinary scene below. The four figures in my office didn't move. Just sat watching me. And now my eyes were darting around the room, frantically searching for something I could do. Manny realized what was going on in my mind before I did. You could grab something and heave it through the window, Miles, and it would attract attention. People would look up and see the smashed window. You could stand there then and shout at the Miles. But no one would come up. My eyes swung to the phone, and Manny said, Grab it. We won't stop you. But you won't get a call through. Becky's head swung toward me, and she buried her face on my chest, her hands clutching my lapels, and my arms around her. I felt her shoulders heave in a dry and soundless sob. Then what are you waiting for? There was an actual red mist swarming before my eyes. What are you doing, torturing us? Manny grimaced, his face apparently pained, and he was shaking his head. No, Miles, no, we're not. We haven't the least desire to hurt or torture you in any way. You are friends of mine, or were. He shook his head, hands outspread helplessly. Don't you see? There's nothing we can do, Miles, but wait and try to explain. Make you understand and accept this. Try to make this as easy on you as we can. Miles, he said simply, we have to wait till you're asleep, that's all. And there's no way you can make a man sleep. Manny looked at me for a moment, then added gently, But there's no way you can keep from sleeping, either. You can fight it off for a time, but finally you'll have to sleep. The little man near the door, I'd forgotten he existed, sighed and said, Lock them in a cell at the jail. They'll sleep eventually. Why all the argument? Manny looked at him coldly. Because these people are friends of mine. Go on home if you want to. Three of us are enough. The little man just sighed. No one ever got mad, I noticed, and continued to sit where he was. Manny got up suddenly, walked toward us, and stood looking down at me, his face pained and regretful. Miles, face it. You're caught. There's nothing you can do. Face it and accept it. Do you like seeing Becky this way? I don't. We stared at each other for several ticks of a clock, and somehow I didn't believe in his anguish at all. Gently, persuasively, Manny said, talk to her, Miles, make her see the truth. No fooling, you won't mind, I tell you. You'll feel nothing at all. Sleep, and you'll wake up feeling exactly the same as you do now, only rested. You'll be the same. What the hell are you fighting? After a moment he turned and walked back to the Chesterfield. Chapter 17 My hand was moving, stroking Becky's hair, gently massaging her neck, comforting her, or trying to, in the only way I could. And then I wondered if it was the only way. I was tired. I could feel it behind my eyes and in the slackening of my facial muscles. I could feel the weariness of my legs and arms. I wasn't exhausted. I could hold out for a time, but not for too long. Nor could Becky. And the idea of sleep, of just dropping my problems and letting go, letting sleep pour through me, and then waking up, feeling just the same as I did now, still Miles Bennell, it was shocking to realize how terribly tempting the idea was. I looked up at Manny, sitting there on the edge of the Chesterfield, eyes wide, his face looking compassionate and anxious, wanting me to believe him, and I wondered if what he said wasn't the simple truth. Even if it wasn't, holding Becky, feeling the tiny tremble of her body, and knowing how terrified she was, was more than I could take and I knew there was something more I could do for her than simply sitting there, stroking her hair. I could persuade her. I could accept what Manny had said, accept and believe it, and then let my conviction convince her. It might even be true, it might. My hand steadily stroking Becky's hair, holding her tight to me. I thought about it feeling the steady trembling of her body, feeling my own weariness, letting the will to believe strengthen and grow. Then Woodlong was right. The will to survive cannot be denied. And I knew we'd fight, that we had to, like a condemned man futilely holding his last breath in a gas chamber, We had to hold out as long as we possibly could, struggling and hoping, even when there was no possible hope left. And now I turned to Budlong, trying to think of something, anything to say, to keep us awake, to find some point of attack, hoping for I didn't know what. How did it happen? I said conversationally. All of Mill Valley? How how did it work? He was willing to answer. And I knew Manny was right. They were simply going to wait till finally we had to sleep. A little blindly at first, Budlong said pleasantly. The hulls, the pods, drifted down in this area. It could have been anywhere, but it happened to be here. They came to rest on the Parnell farm on a trash pile, and their first efforts were merely a blind duplication of what they encountered first, an empty tin can stained with the juice of once-living fruit. A broken axe handle of wood. It's a natural waste, the waste of any kind of seed spore falling in the wrong places. Others though, a few of them, and as a matter of fact it would have taken only one success, fell or drifted or were blown or carried by curious people into the right places, and then those who were changed recruited others, usually their own families. The case of your friend Wilma Lentz is a typical one. It was her uncle, of course, who placed the hull in their basement that effected her change. It was Becky's father who, politely, he didn't finish that sentence. In any event, from the moment the first effective changeover occurred, chance was no longer a factor. One man alone, Charlie Buchholz, the local gas and electric meter reader, brought about over seventy changeovers. He enters basements freely, and usually with no one accompanying him. Delivery men, plumbers, carpenters affected others. And, of course, once a changeover had occurred in the household, the rest were usually rather easily and quickly made. He sighed regretfully. There were accidents, of course, slip-ups. One woman saw her sister lying in bed asleep, and a moment later, the process unfinished as yet, she also saw her sister apparently lying asleep in a guest room closet. She simply lost her mind. Some people, realizing, struggled. They resisted and fought. It's hard to see why. And it was unpleasant for everyone. Households with children were occasionally a little difficult. They're sometimes quick to recognize even tiny and trivial differences. But all in all, it was simple and fast. Your friend Wilma Lentz and you, Miss Driscoll, are sensitive people. Most people weren't aware of any change at all because there is none of significance. And of course, the more changeovers made, the more rapidly the remainder go. And now I'd found a point of attack. But there is a difference. You just said so. Not really, and nothing lasting. But I wouldn't let it go. He'd reminded me of something. I saw something in your study. I said slowly, thinking about it. It meant nothing to me at the time. But now you've made me remember it. And I'm remembering something Wilma Lentz said, too, before she changed. They sat watching, quietly waiting. You told me in your study that you were working on a thesis or paper of some sort, a scientific study, and an important one to you, yes? I leaned toward him, my eyes holding his. Becky lifted her head to stare at my face, then turned to Budlong. There was only one way Wilma Lentz knew. Ira wasn't Ira. Just one way to tell, because it was the only difference. There was no emotion. Not really. Not strong and human but only the memory and pretense of it in the thing that looked, talked, and acted like Ira in every other way. My voice dropped, and there's none in you, but long. You can only remember it. There's no real joy, fear, hope, or excitement in you. Not anymore. You live in the same kind of grayness as the filthy stuff that formed you. I smiled at him. Professor, there's a look papers get when they're left spread out on the desk for days. They lose their freshness somehow. They look different. The paper wilts, wrinkles a little from the air and moisture, or I I don't know what. But you can tell by looking that they've been there for a long time. And that's how yours looked. You haven't touched them since the day, whenever it was, that you stopped being butlong. Because you don't care anymore. They mean nothing to you. Ambition, hope, excitement? You haven't any. Manny, I swung to him. The high school textbook you were planning, an introduction to psychiatry? The draft you were working on every spare minute you had? What happened to it, Manny? When did you last work on it, or even look at it? All right, Miles, he said quietly. So you know. We tried to make it easy on you, that's all because after it was over, it wouldn't have mattered, you just wouldn't have cared. Miles, I mean it, his brows raised persuasively. It's not so bad. Ambition, excitement, what's so good about them, he said. And I could tell he meant it. And do you mean to say you'll miss the strain and worry that goes along with them? It's not bad, Miles, and I mean that. It's peaceful, it's quiet, and food still tastes good. Books are still good to read, but not to write, I said quietly. Not the labor, hope, and struggle of writing them, or feeling the emotions that make them. That's all gone, isn't it, Manny? He shrugged. I won't argue with you, Miles. YOU SEEM TO HAVE GUESSED PRETTY WELL HOW THINGS ARE. NO EMOTION. I SAID IT ALOUD BUT WONDERINGLY, SPEAKING TO MYSELF. Manny, I SAID AS IT OCCURRED TO ME, CAN YOU MAKE LOVE, HAVE CHILDREN? HE LOOKED AT ME FOR A MOMENT. I THINK YOU KNOW THAT WE CAN'T, MILES. HELL, HE SAID THEN, AND IT WAS AS CLOSE TO ANGER AS HE WAS CAPABLE OF COMING. You might as well know the truth. You're insisting on it. The duplication isn't perfect, and can't be. It's like the artificial compounds nuclear physicists are fooling with. Unstable, unable to hold their form. We can't live, Miles. The last of us will be dead, he gestured with a hand as though it didn't matter. In five years at the most... And that's not all, I said softly. It's everything living, not just men, but animals, trees, grass, everything that lives. Isn't that right, Manny? He smiled wryly, tiredly. Then he stood, walked to the windows, and pointed. There in the afternoon sky hung a crescent moon, pale and silvery in the daylight, but very clear. A thin streamer of fog was moving across it. Look at it, Miles. It's dead. There hasn't been a particle of change on its surface since man began studying it. But haven't you ever wondered why the moon is a desert of nothingness? The moon so close to the earth, so very much like it, even once a part of it. Why should it be dead? He was silent for a moment, and we stared at the silent, unchanging surface of the moon. Well, it wasn't always, man, he said softly, once it was alive. He turned away back to the Chesterfield and the other planets revolving around the same life giving sun as this one, Mars, for example. His shoulder lifted slightly. Traces of the beings that once lived there still survive in the deserts. And now it's the Earth's turn. And when all these planets are used up, it doesn't matter the spores will move on back into space again to drift for, it doesn't matter for how long or to where, eventually they'll arrive somewhere. Budlong said it, parasites, parasites of the universe, and they'll be the last and final survivors in it. Don't look so shocked, Doctor, Budlong was saying mildly. After all... What have you people done with the forests that covered the continent and the farmlands you've turned into dust? You, too, have used them up and then moved on. Don't look so shocked. I could hardly say it. The world, I whispered. You're going to spread over the world. He smiled tolerantly. What did you think? This county, then the next ones, and presently northern California, Oregon, Washington, the west coast. Finally, it's an accelerating process, ever faster, always more of us, fewer of you. Presently, fairly quickly, the continent, and then, yes, of course, the world. I whispered it. But where do they come from, the pods? They grow, of course, we grow them, always more and more. I couldn't help it. The world, I said softly, then I cried out, but why? Oh, my God, why? If he could have been angry, he would have. But Budlong only shook his head tolerantly. Doctor, doctor, you don't learn. You don't seem to take it in. What have I been telling you? What do you do, and for what reason? Why do you breathe, eat, sleep, make love, and reproduce your kind? Because it's your function, your reason for being. There's no other reason, and none needed. Again, he shook his head in wonder that I failed to understand. You look shocked, actually sick. And yet, what has the human race done except spread over this planet till it swarms the globe several billion strong? What have you done with this very continent? But expand till you fill it. And where are the buffalo who roamed this land before you? Gone. Where is the passenger pigeon, which literally darkened the skies of America in flocks of billions? The last one died in a Philadelphia Zoo in 1913. Doctor, the function of life is to live if it can. And no other motive can ever be allowed to interfere with that. There's no malice involved. Did you hate the buffalo? We must continue, because we must. Can't you understand that? He smiled at me pleasantly. It's the nature of the beast. And so finally I had to accept it. The condemned man finally exhaling, pausing, then sucking death into his lungs because he can't hold out any longer. There was nothing I could do but this. I could make the last little time left to us as easy as possible on Becky, if we could only spend it alone. Manny, I looked up at him. You said we were friends once, That you remember how it was. Of course, Miles. I don't think you really feel it anymore, but if you can still remember anything of how it was, then... Leave us alone in here. Lock us in my office, and you'll have just the one hall door to guard. But leave us alone now, Manny. Wait in the hall. Give us that much. We can't get away, and you know it. And how can we sleep with you watching us? It'll come faster this way. Lock us in my office, then wait in the hall, Manny. It's the last chance we'll ever have to know what really being alive is. And maybe you can remember a little of how that was, too. Manny looked over at Budlong, and after a moment Budlong nodded, not caring particularly. And Manny turned to Chet Meeker, who shrugged. The little man near the door wasn't even asked. All right, Miles, Manny said quietly. No reason we shouldn't. He nodded at the little man by the door who stood up and went outside to the building hallway. Manny walked to the heavy wood door leading to my office, turned the key in the lock, then twisted and tugged at the door handle, testing it. He unlocked it again and held it open for Becky and me to walk through. Slowly it began swinging shut behind us, and just before it closed, I caught a final glimpse of the little man coming back into the reception room from the building hallway, and his body was nearly hidden by the two enormous pods he was carrying in his arms. Then our door clicked shut. The key turned in the lock and I heard the faint sound of something brushing against the other side of that door. And I knew that those two great pods were lying on the floor now by that locked door so very near to us, yet out of our reach. Chapter 18 I took Becky's arm, holding her hand flat between mine, squeezing it tight between them, and she looked up at me and managed to smile. I led her to the big leather chair in front of my desk, and she sat down, and I sat on the arm, leaning close to her, my arm around her shoulders. For a little time we were silent, and I sat remembering the night, not long ago, yet very long ago, when Becky had come here to talk about Wilma, and I realized she was wearing the very same dress, silk, long-sleeved, and with a red and gray pattern. I remembered how glad I'd been to see her that night, realizing that even though we'd only had a few high school dates, I'd never really forgotten her. And now I understood a lot of things I hadn't before. I love you, Becky, I said, and she looked up at me to smile, then leaned her head back against my arm. I love you, Miles. I heard a tiny sound from the locked door behind us, familiar, yet for an instant I couldn't recognize it. It was the snapping sound a dry, brittle leaf makes. Then I knew what it was, and glanced quickly at Becky, but if she'd heard it, too, she gave no sign. I wish we'd been married, Becky. I wish we were married now. So do I. The faint, snapping, crackling sound came again from the other side of the door behind us, And then I was on my feet, prowling the little office, hunting for something, anything that could help us. More than anything I ever wanted before, I wanted another chance. Now there had to be a way out of this. Remembering to move silently, I opened my desk drawer. There lay prescription pads, blotters, celluloid calendar cards, paper clips, rubber bands of broken forceps, pencils, two fountain pens, an imitation bronze letter opener. I picked up the opener, holding it like a dagger, my fist clenched on the handle, and looked at the varnished surface of the heavy wood door to the reception room. Then I opened my hand and let the useless object drop back into the drawer. There was my instrument cabinet across the room, in which lay rows of stainless steel forceps, scalpels, hypodermic needles, scissors, disinfectants, antiseptics, and I didn't even bother opening the glass doors. There was the little refrigerator, serums, vaccines, antibiotics, and half a quart of stale ginger ale my nurse had left. And I quietly closed the door. There wasn't much else. The office scale, my examining table, an enameled white wall cabinet of bandages, adhesive tape, iodine, mercurochrome, merthiolate, tongue depressors. There was furniture, rugs, my desk, pictures, and diplomas on the wall. There was nothing. I turned to Becky, my mouth opening to say something, and my heart stopped then began to pound, and I took two fast steps to her chair, grabbing her shoulders and shaking her hard. and her eyes flew open. Oh, Miles, I was asleep. Her eyes opened wide in terror. In the lower left-hand desk drawer, I found the Benzedrine tablets, went to the washroom for a glass of water, then gave Becky one tablet. I looked at the little bottle for a moment, then slipped it into my pocket without taking a tablet. I could hold out for a while yet, and it was best for us to take these alternately, the one keeping the other awake. And now I sat at my desk, elbows on the glass top, clenched fists under my cheekbones, Becky watching my eyes to be sure I didn't sleep. If there was any way out of this, it was in my mind, not in my feet prowling the office. Time passed with an occasional brittle snap from the other side of the closed door before me, and we both heard, and neither of us would glance at that door. I made myself sit where I was, remembering everything I knew about the great pods. After a time, I looked up slowly. In the leather chair across my desk, Becky sat silently and alertly watching me, her eyes bright now from the Benzedrine. Very quietly, both asking her advice and thinking out loud, I said, Suppose... Just suppose there was a way, not to escape, there's no way to escape, but to make them take us somewhere else, instead of here. I shrugged, uh, to the city jail, I guess. Suppose there was a way to do that. What are you thinking of, Miles? I don't know. Nothing, probably. I, I, I was thinking of a way to maybe spoil their damn pods, though I'm not even sure we could. But they'd just get more they take us somewhere else and get more. We wouldn't have accomplished a thing. We might gain a little more time, Becky said, because I doubt if there are any more pods at the moment. I think we saw all that were ready. She nodded at the window in the street below. I should think they'd used all they had ready. Maybe the two out there, she indicated the locked door, are the last two we saw left in Joe Grimaldi's truck. There are more growing. All we'd have gained is a little reprieve. I was soundlessly, frustratedly hitting the knuckles of my fist into the palm of my other hand, and that's not enough, it's no good. I was frowning hard, trying to think clearly. A little more time isn't what we want to end up with. If there's a way to make them take us out of here, down out of the building, that has to be our chance. There won't be any other. Becky said, do you think you could hit them, knock them out unexpectedly, leaving the building? Like you did Nick Griv, I was shaking my head. We've got to think real, Becky. This isn't a movie, and I'm not a movie hero. No, I couldn't possibly handle four men or maybe even one. I very much doubt I could handle Manny, and Chet Meeker could break me in two. Maybe the professor or the little fat man, I smiled. Then I spoke seriously again. Hell, I don't even know we could make them take us out of here. Probably not. How would we try, though? She wouldn't give up. I pointed to the reception room door. Right now, if Budlong is right, the things out there are preparing, preparing more or less blindly at first to imitate and duplicate whatever life substance they encounter, cell and tissue, bone structure and blood and that means us once we lie quietly asleep, our body processes slowed down and defenseless, but suppose. I looked at Becky, hesitating. If this weren't the answer, I didn't know what else could be. Yet suppose, I said slowly, that we made those two pods out there expend themselves on something else. Suppose we provided a substitute. Fred and his girlfriend. She frowned a little, not getting what I meant, and I reached out and opened the wall closet beside my desk. The skeletons. I said, pointing at them, standing, hollow-eyed, and grinning in my closet. They did live. Suddenly I was talking rapidly and excitedly, almost as though convincing Becky were all I need to do. Their bone structure, human and absolutely complete. And if Budlong is right, the atoms that compose them are held together still by the very same sort of patterns of force lines, or whatever he wants to call them, that held them together in life and that hold ours together now. There they are asleep and more than asleep, ready, willing, and just possibly able to be taken over, their patterns blindly copied and reproduced instead of ours. After a moment, Becky said, We can't lose by trying, Miles. And before she finished, I was on my feet. In absolute silence, infinitely careful not to bump the loose swinging limbs against the closet walls, I lifted out first the taller male skeleton, carried it to the locked reception room door, and laid it on the floor, face down, so we wouldn't see that grinning face. Seconds later, I laid the female skeleton beside it. We stood looking down at them for a moment. Then I turned to the instrument cabinet at the wall, carefully opened the glass door, and took out a 20cc syringe. I tilted a glass alcohol dispenser against a wad of sterile cotton, then swabbed a small area on Becky's arm, then on mine, then led Becky to the reception room door, From a vein in her forearm, I withdrew twenty cc's of blood, and a moment later, quickly, before the blood could clot, the collar and several rib bones of the nearer figure on the floor were streaked red. From my own arm, I withdrew another twenty cc's and bent quickly over the other figure. Miles, don't, don't! I looked up to see Becky quickly shaking her head, eyes averted her face paling, but I didn't stop. Miles, please, I can't stand it, the way they look, please, don't no more! I stood and turned toward her. All right, I nodded. I don't know at all that it'd do any good, except that it's just that much more living matter. I let it go and didn't finish. But I left the figures on the floor as they were. I didn't really know what I was doing, but I left them as they were. I did one more thing. I didn't ask Becky's permission. I took my desk scissors, snipped off a good chunk of her hair, then a handful of mine, and scattered them on the two figures on the floor. Now there was nothing to do but wait. We sat. Becky in the leather chair, I at my desk, and Becky began speaking. Slowly, doubtfully, and pausing often to look at me questioningly, she described an idea that had occurred to her. I listened. And when she stopped, waiting for an answer from me, I smiled and nodded a little, trying not to look immediately discouraging. Becky, it might. It it probably would work as far as it goes, but I'd still end up struggling on the floor with two or three men on top of me. She said, Miles, I know there's no reason why anything we think of has to work out at all, but now you're thinking like a movie most people do sometimes anyway. Miles, there are certain activities most people never actually encounter all of their lives, so they picture them in terms of movie-like scenes. It's the only source most people have for visualizing things they've had no actual experience of. And that's how you're thinking now. A scene in which you're struggling with two or three men and... Miles... What am I doing in that scene in your mind? You're seeing me cowering against a wall, eyes wide and frightened, my hands raised to my face in horror, aren't you? I thought about it, and she was right. Very accurate, in fact. And I nodded. She nodded, too. And that's how they'll think, the stereotype of a woman's role in that kind of situation. And it's exactly what I will do until I know they've seen and noticed me. Then I can do exactly what you did. Why not? I was considering what she'd said and Becky persisted, unable to wait. "'Why not, Miles? Why can't I?' She paused for an instant, then said, "'I can. You'll be beaten up. You'll have a bad minute or so, but then—' Miles, why couldn't it work?' I was afraid. I didn't like this at all. This was real, genuinely and simply a matter of life or death for us, and I saw that we were going at it in a spur-of-the-moment improvising way. We had to think, be certain— make sure of what we were doing. Take the time to be right and know we were right. Yet now, like soldiers suddenly caught in enemy fire, the most important thinking of our lives had to be improvised on the spot under terrible strain, with the penalty for anything less than perfection being death or worse. There was no time for more careful planning. We certainly couldn't sleep on it, I thought, and smiled with no amusement at the joke. Miles, come on, Becky whispered. She was standing, reaching across the desk, yanking at my sleeve. You don't know how much longer we have. There was a light tapping at the outer door of my office, and from the hallway outside I heard Manny's voice very soft and quiet. Miles, he whispered, then paused. Miles? I'm sorry, Manny, I called out, but we're still awake. I can't help that. You know we'll stay awake as long as we can, but... It won't be too long. It can't be. He didn't answer, and now there was no guessing how much longer we'd be alone. I hated what we were going to do, hated pinning Hope on this one flimsy notion of Becky's, but certainly I couldn't think of anything else at all. All right. I stood up and walked to the little wall cabinet and took out a wide roll of adhesive tape. At the instrument cabinet I gathered up everything else we needed. Then at my desk... I unbuttoned Becky's sleeves at her wrists, pushed back my coat sleeves, and went to work. It didn't take long. Four minutes, maybe. And while I was pulling down my sleeves, Becky buttoning the sleeves of her dress, she gestured with her head. Miles, look. I turned to look, narrowed my eyes to make sure I was seeing it. And then I knew I was. The yellow-white bones on the floor looked different. I can't say how, but looking at them now, there was simply no doubt that they'd changed. It may have been the color, though I couldn't be sure, but it was more than that, too. The sense of sight is more subtle than we're accustomed to think. It sees more than we credit it for. We say, I could tell by looking, and though sometimes we can't explain how that could be, it is usually true. Those bones had lost hardness." although I don't quite even know what I mean by that, or how we could see it. Their form hadn't changed, but they'd lost some degree of rigidity or firmness, like an ancient wall of loosened bricks, its form still unchanged to the eye, but the mortar, crumbling, some strength had left them. Whatever was holding each bone together, giving it its form and shape, was weakening, and the eye could tell it. Trying not to hope too much, ready for disappointment, not yet able to trust what my eyes saw, I stared. Then, suddenly, in the flick of an eye, on a little inch-long segment of the ulna, one of the two bones of the forearm, in the nearest figure on the floor, a patch of gray appeared. Nothing more happened for the beat of a heart. Then the patch lengthened and continued to lengthen, extending in both directions, shooting out along the yellow-white bone. And then it was like an animated cartoon sequence in which a picture is sketched impossibly fast, the lines flashing out in all directions faster than the eye can follow. On both figures on the floor under our eyes, the gray shot out along the bones, following their lines with enormous speed, the entire rib cage of one in the flash of an eye. Then the bone whiteness was gone, and for a suspended instant of time the two skeletons lay there composed in perfect completeness of a gray weightless fluff. The instant ended, and they collapsed. A puff of air would have done it into a formless little heap of dust and nothingness on the floor. For an instant longer I stood staring, wild with elation and the breath sucked into my lungs, and I yelled out, Manny! The hallway door of my office opened instantly, and they came in, hurrying, their faces utterly calm and composed. I pointed with the toe of my shoe, and they stopped, stared for a moment, then Manny pulled the key from his pocket and unlocked the door to my reception room. He opened it, and it bumped something, something hard that clicked on the wood of the door. Manny pushed, the door opened a little more, then jammed. Then each of us as fast as we could, moving one at a time, sidled around that partly blocked door. There, on the brown rug, yellow-white and reproduced down to the last useless detail, lay two skeletons, red daubed on the shoulders, a handful of dark hair filtering through their bones. Face down on the floor, they grinned liplessly and unceasingly at the joke. Beside and under them, nearly unnoticeable on the rug, lay the little brittle fragments of all that remained of the two great pods. Manny nodded slowly several times, lips folded in, thinking to himself, and Budlong said, That's very interesting, really very interesting. Do you know, he turned to me conversationally, eyes friendly as ever, that had never occurred to me, and yet, of course, it's perfectly possible. (laughs) Interesting. He turned to look down at the floor again. "'All right, Miles,' Manny looked musingly at me. "'I guess we will at that, "'have to hold you in a cell till we can get others. "'Sorry, but it's what we'll have to do.' I just nodded, and we all moved out then "'through the door to the building hallway. "'We walked along the hall to the metal fire door, "'and then began filing down the staircase.'" Chapter 19 They had Chet Meeker and the little stout man first. Becky and I were in the middle, Manny and Budlong directly behind us. There was no reason I could think of for waiting, and as we approached the between-floors landing, I brought my hands together, arms hanging loosely before me, and the thumb and forefinger of my left hand reached into my right sleeve, and the thumb and forefinger of the other hand into the left sleeve. The fingers of each hand touched and pulled loose the strips of adhesive just above my cuff lines. Then, this was Becky's plan, each hand held a loaded hypodermic syringe. Stepping into the landing, beginning the half-circle turn, the little stout man was on the inside, gripping the stair rail, and Jet Meeker swung out to walk beside him. I stepped suddenly forward, directly behind them, shoving Becky to one side with an elbow, flinging her into a corner of the landing. Both my hands shot instantly forward, hard and fast. The needles clenched tight between my fingers, thumbs on the depressors, and I gave each man two cc's of morphine in the great muscles of the buttocks and plunged the depressors home. They yelped and swung toward me as Manny and Budlong crashed onto my back, and I was smashed to the steel floor, gouging, kicking, and stabbing out with my needles. But four against one had me in seconds. One needle kicked out of my hand, the other ground to powder and glass fragments under a heel. They had an arm and both legs pinned tight, and I was wrenching and jerking the free arm, trying to keep them from pinning it. Becky, I saw it, and so did they, stood huddled in a corner against the white concrete-brick walls, trying to keep clear of the struggling mass of men, the flying feet and arms. And she cowered helplessly, eyes wide and frightened, both hands raised in a gesture of horror to her open mouth. Then as I struggled, the sound of our panting and grunts loud and echoing, Becky's fingers, her hands still upraised, eyes still wide and astonished. Flickered at the sleeves of her dress, and the buttons were open. She yanked both strips of adhesive loose, stepped forward suddenly as Budlong and Manny leaned over me, grabbing at my flailing arm, and plunged both needles home. The two men straightened. I lay there, motionless, staring and fascinated, and for a moment we all stood, knelt, or lay in a frozen tableau. They stared at Becky, then looked down at me. "'What are you doing?' Budlong said puzzledly. I don't understand. Then I rolled to my knees, started to rise, and they were on me again. It isn't easy to judge how long we struggled there, but then Chet Meeker, kneeling on my arm, sighed gently and toppled limply sideways onto the stairs and rolled slowly, bumping each step till his feet caught in the stair rail, and he lay there stirring sluggishly and staring up at us, They stared after him, and Manny said, "'Hey!' Then the little stout man, kneeling at my head, directly in back of me, hands on my jaws, let go and dropped back, slumping against the wall in a sitting position, and sat there, blinking at us. Budlon looked down at me, his mouth open to speak. Then his knees bent, and he sat down hard enough to make the steel floor throb. Then he lay down on his side, muttering something I couldn't make out. Manny had grabbed the thin, tubular steel railing with both hands, and now he bent over to lay his forehead on the backs of his clenched hands. After a few moments, he slowly knelt to the floor, then his head dropped to hang for a moment between his still-clinging arms, then his hands loosened their grip, and still kneeling, he lay face downward on the corrugated metal floor like a man salaaming. We ran. Not too fast. I kept aware that it was possible to slip and break a bone. Then we were at the metal back door of the building, pushing against it. It wouldn't open. It was locked, the building empty and full of weekend silence. And there was simply nothing to do but turn, walk the length of the building lobby, past the wall directory, toward the doors that opened onto Throckmorton Street." I remembered to say to Becky, keep your eyes a little wide and blank, not too much expression on your face, but don't overdo it. Then I pushed open the doors, and we stepped onto the street, out among the people of dead and forsaken Mill Valley. Within five steps we passed a man my age. I knowed him in high school And my face, uninterested and uncaring. I simply nodded, letting my eyes pass over his face in dull recognition. He nodded in the same way, and then we passed him. I felt Becky's arm under mine trembling. We passed a short, plump little woman... Carrying a shopping bag, who didn't glance at us. Half a dozen yards ahead, a man slid out of the front seat of a parked car and stood waiting for us, a man in uniform, a policeman, Sam Pink. I didn't let us break stride or hesitate, and we walked up to him and stopped. Well, Sam, I said, dully, now we're with you, and it's not so bad. He nodded, but frowningly, and glanced into his car at the humming radio. They were supposed to let us know, he said. "'Kaufman was supposed to phone the station, then we'd get a call.' "'I know,' I nodded. He phoned, but the line was busy. They're calling again now. I turned to gesture with my head at my office building behind us. Sam was no less and no more brighter, quick, than he had ever been, and now he stood staring at me, turning over in his mind what I'd said. I waited, uninterested. A moment passed, and then, as though I took his silence for the conversation conclusion, I nodded, "'See you, Sam.' I said emptily, and, Becky's arm tight under mine, walked on. We didn't look back, and we neither increased nor decreased our pace. We walked to the next corner, then turned right. As we turned, I saw Sam Pink turn into the office building and disappear from sight. And now we ran, down the dead-end half-block of small homes that ended in the low range of hills more or less paralleling Throckmorton. Halfway there, a woman stepped out from the walk leading to one of the houses and confronted us, a little old woman who held up her hand in the abrupt, peremptory manner with which old people sometimes halt traffic in order to stroll across the street. Habit rules us, and I stopped, knowing that this little old lady, a Mrs. Worth, a widow I recognized her now, was no little old lady at all, and that I ought to smash her to the ground with my fist, not even breaking stride. But I couldn't. She looked like a woman, old, tiny, and frail, and for a moment I just stood there staring at her. Then suddenly I brushed her aside, pushed her with my outflung forearm, and she staggered back and nearly fell. Then we were at the end of the concrete walk, our feet hitting red dirt, and an instant later we were climbing, turning onto one of the packed dirt paths that wound up and through the Marin County hills, and we were hidden from the street by the straggling undergrowth and wild tangled shrubbery. Becky lost her shoes, slippers, in the first dozen steps. And though I knew what the path—pebbles, twigs, exposed rocks and roots—were doing and would do to her feet, we couldn't stop. We had no chance. The string was nearly played out, and I knew it. and didn't try to fool myself about it. I knew these paths, hills and winding roadways, every foot of them, but so did others, plenty of others. And between us and Freeway 101, the passing cars and humanity from outside, lay perhaps a couple of miles of hills, paths, fields, and even a last few acres of farmland. Against any kind of search and pursuit at all, we couldn't get through. And even as I was thinking so, the town fire signal began blasting the air, sounding very close, the fire station only two blocks away in a straight line. Mill Valley uses not a siren, but a hoarse, deep-voiced air-blast signal. In timber and pitch it's the note of a foghorn, but the deep notes are short, emitted quickly in a rapid series of growls that vibrate the air for miles, penetrating everything. The unending, identical blasts of sound filled the air in our ears, building a terrible sense of panicky excitement, and I realized that it could make us lose our heads, so that we simply ran blindly and hopelessly. I knew that men were already flinging themselves into cars, that starters were grinding, motors catching, cars lurching forward, carrying men after us and ahead of us, more and more with every blast of that deep and terrible sound. Far ahead, men were leaving houses to spread through these hills, hunting or waiting for us. The next few minutes, no more than five perhaps, were the last moments left in which we could even hope to stay unobserved. Higher on the hill, sloping up to our right, the underbrush dwindled and gave place to an open, exposed, useless stretch of field, waist-high with brown fall weeds. Walking in that field, or any of several others like it ahead, we'd be instantly visible to the first man or men to come over the hill's crest or step out from the underbrush below it. Yet to continue walking this path could only mean stepping into the arms of the men who would be prowling it and every other within minutes. Holding Becky by the arm, I stopped and stood in a panic of confused indecision, trying to make one of two hopeless choices. If it were only dark, we wouldn't be limited by the paths. The area of search would be expanded and... But it was bright daylight, foggy still, but with wide patches of sunlight. Full darkness was several hours off. I turned suddenly, leading Becky off the path, climbing the hill to the beginning edge of the exposed, momentarily sunlit field of weeds that curved on up to the crest. Stooping, my arms moving fast, I began yanking great handfuls of weeds loose, snapping their brittle stems, gesturing violently at Becky to do the same. Then we had, each of us, a huge armload of weeds, like sheaves of wheat, walk ahead I said to Becky, out in the field, and without questioning me, she moved, her body pushing through the weeds, leaving a swath, a trail of bent weeds behind her. I followed, walking sideways, sliding along, and with my free arm moving in a steady, scythe-like sweep, I caught up the weeds we'd bent down, straightening them again as I walked. I moved fast, working with desperate carefulness, sweeping the bent weeds to an upright position again. When we'd gone twenty yards, I could see no visible trail behind us. In the center of the field now, I had Becky lie down, then I lay down beside her. I scattered her armload of yellow weeds over us, covering us. Then, as well as I could... I straightened the weeds around us and set those I carried upright on top of us, spreading them apart till they stood, leaning, sagging in places, but held up by each other in more or less vertical position. Exactly what it would look like to an observer on the edge of the field, I didn't know. But with no trail leading to it, I could only hope it wouldn't be particularly noticeable. Lying in the middle of a wide and exposed field, apparently searchable at a glance, was, I hoped, a hiding place that wouldn't occur to whoever passed it. A hunter, I told myself, expects the fugitive to run. Several minutes passed. Then, very close it seemed, I heard a voice call out. I couldn't understand it quite, but it seemed to be a name. Al, maybe. And another voice answered, yeah, I heard the crackling of underbrush, it continued for a time, then faded away, and I reached carefully for Becky's hand and held it. Chapter 20 We lay for a long time, motionless, terribly uncomfortable at first, then painfully uncomfortable, but never moving, never changing position. From time to time we heard voices on the path near us and from farther away. Once, for a long, long time it seemed, though it was probably no more than three or four minutes, we heard two men talking quietly, slowly climbing our hill, cutting through the field we lay in. The voices drew nearer, steadily louder in volume as they approached. Then they passed us, no more than thirty yards away. We could have heard clearly, I suppose, what they were saying, but I was too frightened and intent on guessing their progress to pay attention to the sense of their talk. Several times, very distantly, we heard automobile horns, series of short and long blasts and some sort of signal. Then, after a very long time, we were cold, the damp and chill rising from the ground underneath us, and I knew the sun was low. That time had passed and that we weren't going to be found, at least not here where we lay. I forced us, Becky not questioning me, to lie here till full dark, and for the last long spell of it we lay steadily, shivering, bone cold, and I had to clench my teeth till my jaws ached painfully to prevent my teeth from actually chattering. Finally we stood, stiffly, hardly able to stumble to our feet, And I saw that with darkness there had come advantages. We couldn't be seen now, it was very dark, from even eight or ten yards away, and broken stretches of fog, a real help, drifted low in the sky and across the ground. But there was that crescent moon overhead, and I knew that long before we could walk to the freeway, there would be times when we could be seen clearly. And long since, I knew, in the time we'd lain silent and motionless in this field, The search would have been organized, the hunting party completed, every able-bodied man, woman, and half-grown child in Mill Valley, for all I knew. And there was only one way we could come, the way we now began walking, toward 101. And they knew that, all of them, as well as we. We weren't going to get out, that was certain, and I understood it. We could only take every least chance we could give ourselves, not giving up, yielding nothing, fighting to the very last instant of time we had left. We each wore one of my shoes. Becky couldn't keep both of them on. They were far too large. But with a handkerchief stuffed in the heel of one she wore, she could keep from losing it, dragging it, shuffling through the weeds or underbrush, lifting it carefully. Favouring our stockinged feet, we walked on through the dark as quietly as we could. Becky holding my arm while I guided us by the shapes of hill crests, an occasional small landmark and simple dead reckoning. An hour passed, and we'd come over a mile encountering no one, hearing no one. An illusion of hope began to grow in me, and I pictured in my mind like a map what lay ahead of us. And I couldn't help this. I began visualizing a picture of ourselves reaching the highway and running across it, stopping traffic suddenly, bunching it up, brakes squealing, twenty or a hundred cars deep, bumper to bumper, and filled with real and living people. We kept on, covering another half-mile in another half-hour. Then we were moving down the gentle slope of the final hill toward the wide strip of empty land that paralleled the freeway along the shallow little valley through which it ran. A dozen steps more, and now, as it had been doing intermittently for an hour, the moon broke through a gap in the low layers of moving fog. In the little valley at our feet we could see the fences, some from the days when this had been farmed, and, a little to the left, the dark shape of a horse barn, Riding horses were stabled and pastured here. In an adjoining field, almost flat, it had been graded once, I saw something I'd never seen before. Between paralleling rows of what appeared to be tiled irrigation ditches lay row after row of cabbages, perhaps, or pumpkins, though neither were grown here, not in this area, nor anything else that I'd ever seen. Fairly round spheres, dark circular blobs in the faint moonlight, growing in long, evenly spaced rows. I knew what they were then, and Becky beside me drew in a sudden sharp breath. There lay the new pods, as large already as bushel baskets, and still growing hundreds of them in the dim, even light of the moon. The sight scared me, terrified me, And I hated to go on, to walk down there and through them, hated the thought of even brushing against one. But we had to. And we sat down, waiting till the fog once more drifted over the face of the moon. Presently it did. The light dimmed and diminished, but not enough. I wanted to cross this open field in as near to pitch darkness as this night would give us. And we sat there on the dark hillside, waiting. I was very, very tired and sat slumped, staring dully down at the ground, waiting till it should darken completely. The field below in which the pods lay was narrow, perhaps a hundred feet across, no more. Then an acres-wide belt of weeds began, sheltering the pods from the view of the freeway beyond. I realized suddenly what would happen. Now I understood why we'd gotten as far as we had, encountering no one. There had been no point in scattering their strength through the territory we had crossed, trying to find us in the darkness. Instead, they were simply waiting for us. Hundreds of silent figures strung along together in a solid line, hidden in the weed-grown fields between us and the freeway we had to approach, until presently we walked into their waiting arms and hands. But I told myself this. There's always a chance. Men have escaped from the most tightly guarded prisons other men could contrive. War prisoners have walked hundreds of miles through a population of millions, every one of them his enemy. Sheer luck, a momentary gap in the line at just the right instant, a mistake in identity made in the darkness, until the very moment you are caught, there's always a chance. And then I saw we didn't dare take even what little chance we might have had. A low swirl of fog edged off the face of the moon, and again I saw the pods, row after row of them, lying evil and motionless at our feet. If we were caught, what about these pods? We had no right to waste ourselves. We were here with the pods, and even though it was hopeless, even though it made capture an absolute certainty, we had to use ourselves against the pods. If there was any luck to be had, this was how it had to be used. A minute passed before the first edge of the next wide bank of fog bit into the face of the moon. It covered it slowly, the light dimming, and then once again it was full dark and we stood and walked silently down the hill into the monstrous field below us. In it at one edge stood a little shed and we hurried to it, occasionally brushing the dry, brittle surfaces of the great pods, stepping over the ditches between the rows. In the shed... With the mini tractor that had scraped out these rows and ditches. I found the tractor gas just inside the open door, six great metal drums of it lined up against the wall on the dirt-packed floor, and the excitement flared up in me and strength pulsed with my blood through my veins. This was futile, of course. There were hundreds of pods, but the chance to make a stand had to be taken, I shook two Benzedrine tablets into Becky's hand, took a couple myself, and we choked them down. And Becky helped me heave the first drum onto its side. It took me ten minutes prowling that little shed, lighting one match after another, to find the rusted wrench up on one of the low rafters. Then we rocked the big metal drum, got it rolling, and trundled it out through the door and down to the nearest of the irrigation ditches. The drum in position... The hexagonal metal plug over the lip of the tile. I started the plug with the wrench, then turned it loose with my hand, the gasoline spurting through my fingers. Then the plug dropped out, and in a steady, rhythmic gurgle, the gasoline poured into the tile ditch and began to flow sluggishly. I wedged the drum in place with a clod of dirt and left it. Presently, Six drums of low-test-farm gasoline lay side by side at the head of the irrigation ditches, and the first one was already empty. Ten minutes passed. We simply sat there, silently. Then the flow from the last of the drums ceased, except for a slow, dripping sound, and I knelt beside the open ditch, the sharp reek of gasoline stinging at my eyes. I lit a match, dropped it into the still, slow-flowing pool, and it promptly went out. I lit another, and this time brought it slowly down till the bottom edge of flame touched the shiny surface. I could see my face reflected in the pool. The flame caught, a little flicker of blue that grew into a circle, half-dollar-size for a moment, then swelling to the shape and diameter of a saucer, and then it flared, puffed up smokily so that I jerked my head back, and the flame, red spikes mixing with the blue now, moved down the tile ditch, widening to its edges, and in another instant it began to race. The heat grew and multiplied on itself. The flames began to sound, a liquid crackle and they reddened and shot suddenly high, and the black smoke began to roll. Standing now, we followed the line of flame with our eyes, watching it climbing in height, running down that field in parallel lines, shooting down, connecting ditches with a subdued roaring sound, and the black silhouettes of the pods were suddenly sharp against the smoky red flame. The first pod burst into a round, torch of pale, almost incandescent flame. The smoke, white, then the second, then the fourth and fifth together, then the third, and now the soft explosive puffs of pods bursting into flame came steady as a clock tick, one after another down the rows, flaring into mushrooming incandescence, and the sudden sound of hundreds of voices moving towards us through the weeds beyond them washed at our ears like surf. For perhaps a minute I thought we had won, and then, of course, the gasoline. Only six drums of it flowing into the field burned out. One after another, the racing red lines of flame slowed and stopped, dwindling at all the points where the last trickles of gasoline had flowed into the ground. The rows of burning torches still glowed, but the flames were redder, the white smoke increasing, and no new ones were catching. The flames, higher than a man at their peak were suddenly only waist-high, sinking rapidly, and the red lines of fire, once solid and bright, were broken. At almost the same moment, the flames, covering perhaps half an acre of field, subsided to flickering inch-high tongues, and the hundreds of advancing figures were upon us. They hardly touched us. There was no anger, no emotion in them. Stan Morley, the jeweler, simply laid a hand loosely on my arm, and Bed Ketchell stood beside Becky in case she should try to run, while the others, gathering around us, looked at us without curiosity. The two of us then, in the midst of a straggling mob of hundreds of people, began slowly climbing the hill we'd come down. No one held us. There was very little talk, no excitement. We simply plodded, all of us, on up that hill. One arm around Becky's waist, my other hand on her elbow. I helped her as well as I could, my eyes on the ground thinking of nothing, feeling nothing, except how tired I was. And then the vast low murmur of hundreds of voices all around us sounded again, and I lifted my head. Even as I looked, the murmur stopped abruptly, and I saw that everyone had stopped. They stood, stock still, facing the little valley we'd climbed from, and their faces were raised to the sky in the moonlight. Now I followed their gaze, and in the clear, thin light of the moon I saw what they'd seen. The sky above us was peppered with dots, more than dots. A great, awesome swarm of dark, circular blobs drifted, ascending slowly and steadily into the sky. A last trail of mist left the face of the moon, the sky brightened, and I watched the great pods, the field they had come from almost empty now, steadily rising. Then the last few of the pods still on the ground actually moved, leaning to one side to snap the brittle stems that held them. Then they, too, rose with the others. And we watched the great swarm slowly diminishing in size, never touching or bumping, climbing steadily higher and higher into the sky and the spaces beyond it. Chapter 21 Revelation is the word for a complex of thought revealing itself instantaneously with the enormous impact of absolute truth. Standing motionless with Becky, my mouth agape, head far back, staring up at that incredible sight in the night sky, I knew a thousand things it would take minutes to explain, and others I can never explain in a lifetime. Quite simply, the great pods were leaving a fierce and inhospitable planet. I knew it utterly. And a wave of exultation so violent it left me trembling, swept through my body because I knew Becky and I had played our part in what was now happening. We hadn't and couldn't possibly have been, I saw this now, the only souls who had stumbled and blundered onto what had been happening in Mill Valley. There had been others, of course individuals and little groups, who had done what we had, who had simply refused to give up. Many had lost, but some of us, who had not been caught and trapped without a chance, had fought implacably and a fragment of a wartime speech moved through my mind. We shall fight them in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. True then for one people. It was true always for the whole human race. And Now I felt that nothing in the whole vast universe could ever defeat us. Did this incredible alien life-form think this too, or know it? Probably not, I thought, or anything our minds could conceive but it had sensed it, it could tell with certainty that this planet, this little race, would never receive them, would never yield. And Becky and I, in refusing to surrender, but instead fighting their invasion to the end, giving up hope of escape in order to destroy even a few of them, had provided the final conclusive demonstration of that truth. And so now, to survive their one purpose and function, The great pods lifted and rose, climbing up through the faint mist, on and out toward the space they had come from, leaving a fiercely implacable planet behind, to move aimlessly on once again forever, or it didn't matter. I don't know how long we stood looking up at the sky. Presently the tiny dots became specks and a moment later, blinking my eyes against the strain, I stared again, and they were gone. For a time I simply held Becky, squeezing her to me. Then I was aware of the murmur again, quieter now and more subdued of the voices around us. We looked up, and they were moving past us and beyond us, on up the hill back to the doomed town they had come from. They straggled by, their faces bland and emotionless, a few of them glancing at us as they passed, most of them not even interested now. Then Becky and I walked down the hill, passing through them, dirty, our clothes smeared and wrinkled, and we limped, shuffling through the grass and weeds, one shoe off, one shoe on, in awkward, stumbling victory. Silently we passed the last of the figures around us, and then we were walking down the slope through the weeds toward the freeway and the rest of our kind. We stayed that night with the Belichicks. We found them in their home, where they'd been held, fighting sleep to the end, released now and free. Theodora was asleep in a chair. Jack sat staring out his great front window, waiting for us. There wasn't actually much to be said, though we said it, grinning with weary elation. Then, within 20 minutes, we were each of us lying in exhausted sleep. It didn't even reach the papers, this particular story. Drive across Golden Gate Bridge into Marin County today, make your way to Mill Valley, and you'll simply see a town, in a few places a little shabbier and run down than it quite ought to be, but not startlingly so. The people, some of them, around the bookstore plaza, for example, may seem to you strange, listless and uncommunicative, and may impress you as a little weird. You'll see more houses empty and for sale than can quite be accounted for. The death rate here is rather higher than the county average, and sometimes it's hard to know just what to write down on a death certificate. On and around certain areas, clumps of trees, patches of vegetation, and occasional animals sometimes die from no apparent cause. But all in all, there's nothing much to see in or say about Mill Valley. The empty houses are filling quickly. It's a crowded county and state, and there are new people, most of them young and with children in town. There's a young couple from Nevada living next door to Becky and me, and another... We don't know their names yet, just across the street and the old Greason place. In a year, maybe two or three, Mill Valley will seem no different to the eye from any other small town. In five years, perhaps less, it will be no different. And what once happened here will have faded into final unbelievability. Even now, so soon... There are times, and they come more frequently, when I'm no longer certain in my mind of just what we did see or of what really happened here. I think it's perfectly possible that we didn't actually see or correctly interpret everything that happened or that we thought had happened. I don't know. I can't say. The human mind exaggerates and deceives itself. And I don't much care. We're together, Becky and I, for better or worse. But showers of small frogs, tiny fish, and mysterious rains of pebbles sometimes fall from out of the skies. Here and there, with no possible explanation, men are burned to death inside their clothes. And once in a while, the orderly, Immutable sequences of time itself are inexplicably shifted and altered. You read these occasional queer little stories, humorously written, tongue-in-cheek most of the time, or you have vague, distorted rumors of them, and this much I know, some of them, some of them are true.